Hello, everyone, and welcome back to How Do You See Your Glass, the podcast, and also the launch of our Empower Garifuna Woman Collective project. I've been working on this project since February. It was an idea that came to me in which I really wanted to highlight the contributions and the accomplishments of Garifuna women. As a Garifuna woman myself, I know what it's like to really navigate the world um, as an indigenous and also as a Latinx woman. And I really just wanted to use this space to really highlight the amazing work that these women are doing. And so I hope that you enjoy and please, please be on the lookout for our next um, Empower Garifuna Women Collective in november and i hope that you guys do sign up and so please enjoy and again for those of you who don't know me my name is allison and if you are a first-time listener welcome i hope you enjoy the concept that i do have and if you haven't already please follow us at how do you see your glass the podcast on instagram that is hdy.syg podcast again that is hdy.syg podcast i hope you enjoy hello everyone and welcome back to how do you see your glass the podcast today i have the pleasure of speaking with daisy guzman i'm just gonna let her introduce herself she is a wonderful person a lot of knowledge um and she is definitely somebody to connect with when you need some advice or when you need someone to just go to the tell you about the history of the Garifuna culture. And so without further ado, I do want to introduce you guys to Daisy. And so Daisy, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm Daisy Guzman. I am from the Bronx. My family is from Livingstone, Isabel, Guatemala. Both my father and mother are from Livingstone and some parts of Puerto Barrios, mainly El Rastro. I grew up in the Bronx. I went to Randolph High School and then to Allegheny College for a dual degree in Spanish and psychology. And now I am getting my PhD in African and African diaspora studies at the University of Texas with a focus on Garifuna women's history. So. What actually, well, now that we talked about just like your education really quickly, I want to touch on um, what inspired you to actually go to study that route? Because I don't think that that's a lot of, um, that's kind of a field that a lot of Garifuna people go into, even if they do tend to go into a PhD program. And so I just want to know um, what really kind of inspired you to take that route into going into that field and just like eventually what is it that you want to do with that degree? Truly, it was trial and error because like most Caribbean and, you know, Black children, everybody is going to college to become a lawyer, a doctor, and half of us are not even good at science, like speaking facts. So I almost failed out my first year of college because I was trying to take all these biology and math classes. And my mom is here. Ni te gusta la ciencia, no sé por qué estás ahí. And I was like, wow. You decide to tell me this after the fact. So I switched over to Spanish to improve my GPA. And I started to notice that we are not even talking about the Garifuna people in Mexico and Guatemala and Honduras, but we're talking about the war in those countries. And I was like, well, my mama was there too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're not going to bring this up. No, we're going to go to the dirty wars across Latin America. I was like, okay, but the black people were there too. And as I try to look for books to prove my point, I couldn't find any. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, for sure. Like, um, and I think we talked a little bit about this too, because um, in my um, anthropology class, I remember it was my sophomore year of college, um, and we actually talked about the Civil War in Guatemala. Yes. And um, if I'm not mistaken, this is definitely around late 80s, early 90s. Mm-hmm. And um, so as I'm reading, I'm like, okay, like I understand like this happened to like the mestizos and things like that. But in my mind, I'm like, what was what happened to the Garifuna people during this time too? Like, was this just one isolated incident or was there some sort of intersectionality that happened there that's just not documented? So that was like sort of the questions that happened for me that kind of went unanswered. Um, but that's also something that I voiced in my class, like, well, there are Garifuna people in Guatemala. So what happened mm-hmm. to them? Um, and again, I wasn't really able to find anything that can really like speak to what I was saying. And so um, I'm not sure if you were able to find anything or if you have some knowledge on like I'm, what exactly they that were. is my dissertation. I'm still okay. looking. OK, I'm still looking because the thing about Garifuna people in Guatemala, because we are smaller than the population mm-hmm. in Honduras and Belize, we do not have as many documents as the other countries have. So a lot of our history is like word of mouth. If you can find it in a song, in a poem, through pictures, through letters, maybe, but everything is word of mouth or um, people outside of academia do not have the access to. So a lot of the articles that were written during that time, you have to have the privilege of being in higher education in order to read them because they are not free for people outside of academia. Wow, that's really interesting. I never mm. even know that. Wow. Yeah, if you got like JSTOR and whatever, because yes. you are in college, you have access to these articles. However, if you're not in college, you have to pay for them. And each article is like $30. What are you going to pay $30 to read an article when you could just go watch a YouTube video or something? But it's not going to give you like an in-depth analysis. And most of these articles are not even written by Garifuna people. So you still have half facts. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm excited. I think I think it is time now that we do have the privilege of like being able to go into higher education to really begin writing our own stories, because that was also something that I really noticed, too. Um, and again, we're in different times now. I'm sure there are more um, just literature out there now. Um, but that when I was a sophomore, I think that was probably 20, 15, 2016, around there. Um, no, it was definitely 2016, 2017. <laughs> um, but I remember I did something. It was like I had to do, um, it was my research methods class. Yes. So I decided to talk about the evolution of Punta. Um, and when I actually went to look for like just literature about like Garifuna people and like Punta, like you mentioned, like it just wasn't written about written by Garifuna people. So like, and then there wasn't a lot of literature anyway. So like, I kind of just had to go off of what I knew. And like, obviously, if you know you're in academia, sometimes if you're just going based on um, life experiences, um, which a lot of our prior knowledge is based on, um, that sometimes that's not merited as scholarly. So I kind of had to find a way to kind of find articles that kind of could support what I was talking about. But again, as you mentioned, this is not something that... um, a lot of people know about or there's not a lot of people who are in the field of academia who can really 
talk to this experience. So it was really, it was really difficult. Oh my gosh. And I really had to explain like, this is just a culture that has really been rooted in survival. So a lot Mm -hmm. of what we do is kind of just amongst each other. And this is kind of like a new emerging theme where we're now kind of being out there. Um, So yeah. Boldly. Mm, yeah. And that's why my project had to move from the Spanish department to Black studies, because there was no way, there was no way a white woman was going to tell me mm-hmm. how I'm navigating the world as a Garifuna woman, yeah. as a Black woman. There's no way. Like, no, I, I, I said what I said. Yeah. So that's why I had to move to Black studies, because in order to talk about how Garifuna women are moving in the United States, you need to know how Black women were and are moving in the United States. And then when we're citing how Black women are moving in the United States, most of those theorists are Caribbean women, Mm -hmm. right? When we're talking about the Audrey Lords, the Sylvia Winters, um, Carol Boy Davies, talking about Caribbean women migrating to New York and migrating to like these major cities and changing up the landscapes to open up like Caribbean spaces. That's where we find the Garifuna people. Mm-hmm. yeah for sure wow so like have you um so like as we're transitioning now have you mm-hmm. always been surrounded by the Garifuna culture or was that an identity you questioned as a child and later decided to explore it was never a question I was all up and through the Garifuna community in the Bronx <laughs> it was like you know St. Mary's during the week El Campo or like Brooklyn on a Saturday if my mom was feeling up to traveling that far and then Wapodu on Sunday like I was always Garifuna so I never had to like question being Garifuna that's just what I was what came into question later was um am I identifying as black when I go up to introduce myself or am I identifying myself as Hispanic because if you realize documentation on certain documentations, you could not be Black and Hispanic prior to 2010. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Right, so then I stopped using Hispanic when I looked up the actual definition and realized that Ronald Reagan was just racist. So it was like, I dropped Hispanic altogether. And that's, you know, getting to college and learning like the history behind the terminology, because I was like, I was just Hispanic to, you know, ease the mind of people who did not want to look up what Garifuna was. And this is prior to Garifuna being on Wikipedia. Wow. Because we've been out here for a while. It's just, we didn't have documentation that was easily mm-hmm. found on Google. Yeah. Or books to show people or like, like pictures to show people. This is before Instagram, before like the tourist sites, in Garifuna area before Twitter. So dropping Hispanic was just something that was like, eh, I was always Garifuna and I was always Black. Like my race and my culture was never put into question. What I had to explore was like, all right, what is this Afro-Latino situation and what was happening with this? Yes, that's actually that's actually a great segue um, <laughs> to my next question is um, really just how do you identify yourself now? Like, do you identify yourself as Garifuna or Afro-Latinx or do you identify as like both um, and why? I am Garifuna, period. I don't, I don't add anything else to it. I'm Garifuna. I'm not Afro-Latina because Afro-Latina has been co-opted, which I knew it would happen. I've used Afro-Latina 
um, in my early college years for those scholarships. You remember <laughs> when they when the term first started and they were giving out scholarships to Afro Latino population? Yeah. I was in there. I was with it. But now it's just like Afro Latino is being um, conflated with being mixed. Yes. Yeah. Right. And it's like, oh, you have one Latin American parent and one African American parent in that generation of although that is true, that's not what the term originally started as. And I'm like, baby, that's your fight. Um, yeah. That's above me. I don't know <laughs> what to do with that because I was Garifuna out the womb and I'm Garifuna yeah. now. And we didn't have this um, reclaiming of identity situation. What we have to do is, you know, reclaim a language, but the identity and the culture was never lost. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think for me, like, because I kind of use it interchangeably only because of kind of just how I was raised. I was raised like, um, I was raised in the Garifuna culture, yes, but it was mainly like in the household always spoke with Spanish so like Mm -hmm. my mom never spoke Garifuna to me never she only spoke Garifuna like to my older aunts um but we only spoke Spanish we only listened to bachata I probably know more yeah I probably know more like bachata songs than Garifuna songs like so like I feel like for me like it was more of a what my like what that looked like for me in the household that I was pretty much like okay like I guess I'll identify as Afro Latinx, but now I'm really, I'm trying to really understand kind of just like the journey of the Garifuna people. I'm really trying to kind of start identifying as Garifuna now. So even when I do talks now, I'm like, hey, like my, I'm Garifuna American and so-and-so, whatever. Um, <laughs> but I'm really, really trying to reclaim that as well. Because like you said, when you do say Afro Latinx, it's kind of that erasure of like, exactly. who you really are. You kind And they kind of just group you into like, oh, okay, she's mixed. And it's like, no, mm-hmm. we're like, I feel like people are 100% African. <laughs> like, so. And then if you really want to shake the table when people not ready is everybody across the America is African-American because are we not all African and is, you know, the United States all the way down to Brazil, not the Americas. So if you really want to get into it, we are African-American, yeah. right? We are Caribbean. We are Afro-Latino based on the geography of Latin America and being Black from Latin America. So Garifunas are literally everything that is Black about the Americas. So whichever one you decide to go with, you are not lying when you decide to identify with that. Just be ready to back it up. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I do I do know a few Garifuna people who are like, they just identify as African-American and I don't know. Not a lot. Yeah. <laughs> that is true. And I was like, why? Like, I remember growing up and I'm just like, but why though? But like, now that you say that, it kind of does make a lot of sense. Like, I just think that the Garifuna people are such a complex, like, population. And it's kind of like, and it's just so many internet intersectionalities and also like that transnationality. And it's like, mm-hmm. how do you embrace all those sides? Like, you know? Exactly. And then it's just like, when you think of what is the term African-American is co-opted into the United States imperialism and only thinking of the United States as America when there is Central America and South America and Africans in both sections of the Americas. So African-American does not solely belong to the United States because the United States is not solely America. Yeah. Right. 
even in Spanish, you're st- you're the United Stateers. It's not even America. It's the United Stateers. Yeah, that is so true. And I I was like thinking just about kind of the um one of the things that I've really been questioning now, right? Is kind of like that viewpoint on the American dream, right? Because everyone's mm-hmm. always talking about the American dream, but there's a certain like. The American dream, to me, I feel like it's kind of like the glass ceiling for women. And like a lot of people, they're trying to attain this American dream that was not built for them. And I feel like the same thing happens to Garifuna people because, again, a lot of times we're subjected to the African-American experience, right? And then it's kind of like, how do you navigate that now? So many questions. (laughs) So many because as black people in the Americas, you're subjected to the Afro- afterlife of slavery and the afterlife of the Haitian revolution, yeah. meaning as black people, you are always seen as being in defiance. Mm-hmm. The American dream is a dream of whiteness and is a dream of conformity to whiteness, right? Because what is the American dream for black people besides survival, besides peace? is that we're at the point where the American dream for Black people is just a time of rest to literally live their lives and live full lives Mm -hmm. with their family. Like, it's not even like a big old house and a white picket fence and the dog and the two kids is literally making it to old age with all your benefits and some money in your pocket. Wow. So in a sense, we're kind of still navigating that survival tactic. We're still navigating survival. We can't even like disillusion ourselves to be like, we're going to have this nuclear family that was created for white people. Yeah. Like what is a black version of, you know, you actually made it in the United States when consistently Black men are dying on the streets. Black women are dying on the streets. Yeah. Black women are dying in hospitals. You can't even give birth without the possibility of death. Yeah, that is so true. That is so true. And you know, it's so funny because um, I was definitely telling my line sister this and I was like, yes, like there's always outrage and outcry, right? When um, obviously there's like an encounter with the police officer and the black man, but there's little to no media attention about kind of police brutality against black women um, mm-hmm. with the exception of the Breonna Taylor's case, but, and um, Sandra Bland, but, you know, but it's, it's had to take those cases to really open up the conversation about police brutality and um, maternal mortality as well. Like, um, against black women and even now um I just think that we also have to move away from like always having the conversation to really being proactive so we don't have to have these conversations anymore and exactly and it's not even just being proactive is um protecting black women does not mean to leave black men in the dust that's not what that means is to protect the black woman as hard as you protect the black man and vice versa, right? Because when we see these Black Lives Matter protests in the streets, it's women at the forefront. However, when we see black women mortality rates in the hospital, who is going to bat for us? Who's in the streets protesting for us, Mm -hmm. you know? So it has to be 
consistent on all fronts. That's really the issue. And it's not only like destroy the system, but what are we doing to build it? Mm-hmm. Right? So now we have this movement for like midwives with this like new generation mm-hmm. of like black women going back to ancestral healing process, which I love so much. And this is where like tapping into your Garifuna history is going to become important because half of our families were midwives. Mm-hmm. If you think the ancestors is not trying to reach out to you right now, <laughs> listen, they will find you. Yeah. That is so true. I know so many people were born in houses. I was like, what? <laughs> born in houses, still literally have the yeah. touch and don't know what to do with it ancestors trying to speak to you you think is like the puerto rican version like oh my grandma came to my dream to say hi no boo (laughs) this is a chagul bound to happen and either you get with it or things will go down that is true you know it's so funny because I, i my family has never done that like these are things like i've always heard about probably seen from afar but my personal family like they have not yeah, they haven't done it. I don't know. And that's like, okay. Yeah. But the ancestors do tap a generation that's ready to be tapped into. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. it skips, sometimes it doesn't, but um the connection is never really lost. Yeah. I definitely I definitely agree with you. Like um I used to feel like I was crazy because crazy. <laughs> and it's so funny because I used to feel like I was crazy because like I, it will be times that I'll be in a room, but I'll see someone next to me, like, or like, I'll probably see like a shadow, like just standing behind me. And I, and I used to get so scared, but like now I'm like, okay, like, hello, whatever. But um, before I was like, is there something wrong with me? Cause like my, fa- again, like my family does not talk about it. And when we do talk about it, it's kind of deemed as like, oh, like those are stuff for the devil. And like, you shouldn't doing that or tapping into that like that's gonna bring you bad luck and I'm just like okay so like I never really spoke about it with anyone but I know like I can see these people (laughs) you know and it's not the devil and that's where like um religion and dominion and what is your ancestral practice actually clash right you could hold on both simultaneously but like what is to drink the bread and the wine if not worship? Like you say, you drinking someone's blood in your body, and mm-hmm. and that's supposed to be normal, mm-hmm. right? You out here chanting and stuff, you know, giving up stuff for a certain imp- amount of time. Is that not ceremony? Yeah. When you do it for your ancestors, what really is the difference? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there's also a lot to unpack within the Garifuna community. So many. And then it's just like the missionaries that told them that was for the devil when missionaries were the white devils themselves. Listen. Yeah. I never even thought about missionaries going into Garifuna villages because I've always felt like Garifuna villages were so isolated. Um, Yeah. And they found their way over there and decided to make half the Garifunas Catholics or Jehovah Witnesses. And then, you know, some of them took Garifuna wives. That's a whole nother story and a whole nother history of ratchetness. And I don't even know. Yeah. Well, definitely resources. And I'll include the resources as well 
um, in the description box so people can have access to it. Um, because this is definitely needed. I did. I learned so much today. <laughs> um, Tea is hot yeah. when it comes to Sangari Puna history. But yes. So like, um, as we're kind of like closing off now, I just have two more questions. But um, I really want to start off with just um, how has your journey been like in higher education as a Garifuna woman in your program or field overall? So as a Garifuna woman, it's hard to write about the topic where there's nothing exactly written about my topic for like centering Garifuna women, right? So even looking through like Spanish articles, I am simultaneously trying to read Spanish, English, and Garifuna at the same time in order to write one page about Garifuna women. There's a point in time where I might have to dabble in French because the resources about Garifuna people are not all in English. Mm-hmm. So in order to do hi- history or like any project involving Garifuna people, you have to be multilingual. You have yeah. to be. And you can't even just say, oh, I'm reading stuff by Black people, because you can't. You have to read from everybody, the Caribbean writers, um, people writing in Spanish, people writing um, in the geography department, the history department what else I have here anthropology sociology um economy yeah what else we have people doing archival work even journalists because the most I have about Garifuna people come from newspaper articles okay wow so it's a lot and are you also like um are you doing like narrative experiences for your dissertation where you're gonna be like interviewing yes. people? Okay. I'm interviewing um Garifuna Guatemalan women okay. in New York City mm-hmm. and in Guatemala to see how that community formed because okay. there are already writers like Paul Joseph Lopez Oro who are doing who is doing interviews <laughs> and writing his book on yeah. Honduran New Yorkers. Okay. Oh wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really interesting to see um, things across all boards because it's like we're all Garifuna, but we do things just a little bit differently, right? And like just a little bit differently, <laughs> and just like, yeah. and I'm here. So he's doing contemporary Garifuna mm-hmm. understanding of New York, and I'm going back yeah. oh. to the '80s. Okay, okay. So that voided area of what actually brought you here. Right. Mm-hmm. Because in, there's a certain type of history is like, OK, they got to Honduras and Livingstone, created their barrios. Mm-hmm. It was living, you know, all willy nilly. And then, boom, 1980, like 300 people leaving the barrios to come to New York. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's a and one. it's like, I was like, so yeah, I just did that. <laughs> Where you got the money from? Yeah. How did you get here? How you got a pass passport? Yeah. Did you come with a passport? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, that's interesting yeah. because remember a lot of things kind of shifted after 9-11. Ex- so. Exactly. And 9-11 is another shift. So I'm talking yeah. about um, the shift of the Peace Act across Central America because 1996 mm-hmm. was a shift in migration for Central America itself. Yeah. And, and the fact that they didn't believe that Black people actually lived in Central America was another shift. Yeah, that is so true. That is so true. Wow. There's like a lot. There's so like even um 
what is the factory that's in Honduras? Is it is it Goya? Um, is it this? Chica? The, the um, banana? The, the banana. banana, yes. Yeah. yeah. And I also think that played a role as well. A whole role. Yeah. It was a whole plantation. Mm-hmm. That was like, because like a lot of Gadifina people also started to move towards the city. So they started to mm-hmm. leave the villages. And I, it's so crazy because it's like now, like um, the government is just so pressed to take over that land. Exactly. Oh, so much. <laughs> but it's like nobody's really there to reclaim it. But the people who are there fighting to keep the land are dying. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like a lose-lose situation. But it's really all because of colonialism. Like imperialism, all of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow, that's a lot to unpack. It is. Um, but my last question to you um is really just um to give Garifuna woman listening right now um, who may have had a similar experience or who may want to pursue a PhD because I, I definitely do. But now that I'm learning about this, like I'm kind of thinking like mm, maybe I should <laughs> um, kind of like you should do it. If you are in a field that you know your PhD can work for that field and work for you then do it. Because in my field, I want to be um, a professor that takes Carifuna students back to Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua. And shoot, if we, if we could get some, fun, some funding, St. Vincent, and really like look at that diaspora and teach it as like, you know, like a summer course or like an emergent course and be in dialogue with students in Central America, but also students in the United States. That's yeah. what I want to do as a profession. So a PhD is necessary in order to guide students through that and also fund that, right? You can also get your master's in it. You can literally do whatever you want to do with how you want to acquire Garifuna knowledge, but you do not need to go into higher education if that is not what your path requires. Yeah. Right? Because the reading and the material you if you ask you will get access to it mm-hmm. right because that's what people like me you um professor lopez Oro are here for to give you access to the information you usually would not have access to right but if the phd is your path and you already know your topic do not waver and don't let anyone tell you that you can't do something just because they don't understand what you're doing. If you understand yourself, you understand yourself. All you need is a little bit of guidance on how to read other material, but your prior knowledge and your life experience is scholarly work. Yeah. Wow. Yes. Oh my God. Thank you for validating that because these people will tell you that your experience is not valid. And it's like, no, you just need the right citation. That's it. Yeah, for sure. Wow. Thank you so much, Daisy. This was so, like, I feel so full. (laughs) I'm so happy that, like, we had this conversation because I do think it's needed. And also, it's not, it's not usually a conversation that we hear. And so, like, I do think that this work is important. I'll be reading your dissertation. Make sure you send it to me. Um, And also, I write it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, procrastination is real for sure. But I'm excited. I'm really, really excited. And I'm also excited to see just how the Gadifuna people continue to kind of just like transcend. 
um, throughout the generations. And so thank you for being here. I'm so excited. And thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we'll talk soon. Hey Africa, how good you got it now? Go, hey Africa, oh Africa, how you not put it in you?